Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Okay, so today we're going to rapidly up for my part of the course. Uh, by the way, that means that so you can test on Tuesday, but then presentations start Thursday, and I believe six of you still haven't signed up for a presentation time. So you might want to do that. Get a topic, sign up. Because if you don't, and it passes you by, I can't guarantee that I've got 24 a day there, I can't guarantee you will be able to get in as a fifth person on a day. So get your topic approved and um, go from there. So uh, today I'm going to talk about, sort of wrap it all up from my end, and there's two things I want to do. I want to talk about social psychology and culture today, but and an evolutionary angle on that. And also, depending on how long this takes, I mean, it might take a little longer. I want to talk generally, and maybe get your thoughts generally on this sort of approach that we've talked about in this course, to psychology. Um, okay, good. I'm recording. I always get concerned. So, we're going to look at social psychology, as I said, in the study of culture, which is a big tradition in psychology. This goes back, in fact, to Wundt. What does you guys think in history know this? Probably. That... You know, Wood's the first guy really that does scientific psychology. Love Wood, he does perception basically um, and sensation. But he also later in his career talked about what he called both psychology, which is kind of like social psychology, but it's a, it's got the German word Volk in it, which is a strange word that doesn't just mean people. It means people in their historical blood bound to the land. German's weird. Okay. Just like the word gestalt. Have you guys been doing gestalt psychology in that class? And yeah, they, the Germans have a word for the ball is worth some of its parts, but not a word for glove. So German's a little weird. So it does go back. And he was really studying culture. He was talking about, he was talking about really almost a comparative psychology of cultures, which is kind of an interesting approach. So really, this does go back to Flint. It's not like looking at culture is something new in psychology. It's something, and cross-cultural psychology is a big thing as well. Very often this kind of stuff ignores evolution, though it doesn't always ignore evolution. Um, there is a whole tradition, again, those of you guys that are taking history of psych know about this, know about functionalism, which is something James was into. What does behavior, what does culture, what does cognition accomplish? What is its outcome? And that clearly was influenced by Darwin. James was a big fan. William James, the first the guy who wrote the first psychology textbook, was a big fan of Charles Darwin. So there was certainly influence there. But for the most part, this isn't necessarily a bad thing, by the way. It's something that we can just, in some respects, it's useful because if people have ignored evolution and evolutionary theory, and we can then look at something through different eyes, look at their data, and interpret it based on evolutionary theory, that's kind of useful. It's kind of cool in and I'll talk about a couple of examples like that today. So it's a big tradition in psychology. And again, I'm not trashing it in any way. I think some of this stuff's fascinating. And I think cross-cultural psychology, which is hardly ever done from an evolutionary angle, tells us a great deal because we can look at cultural constants. And they're not looking for evidence of the effect of evolution by natural selection on culture, on behavior. But they show them. Um, <clears throat> So if we're talking about social psychology, a question we can ask right away is, why are we social? Why do we live in groups? 
right? I know it sounds weird, because you think of humans and you think, well, we live in groups. That's what we do. That's our job. But most species aren't. Most animal species are not social. They don't interact. They're social once, right? Or they're social once a year, which means that when they mate, you want to call that social behavior, right? Most species aren't social. Now, when we get to the primates, almost all primates are social. In fact, I think all primates are social. Um, so let groups. Right? But even most mammals aren't social. Aren't. Most of the cats, for example. People always like, oh, I have to find another cat. My cat needs a friend. Your cat actually is not a social animal. It does not need a friend. Unless you have a lion. Lion, the only social cat. And if you have a lion, you've got a whole other set of problems. <laughs> I wouldn't get a pet lion. Um, Dogs different. Dog having a couple dogs, that's good. Dogs are social animals, but cats are not social. They don't need other things around them. That's not how they operate. Please. What if they're family? Because I have like two brothers that are cats, and they just always hang out. Mm. The interesting thing was with house cats, with domestic cats, is that we never let them grow up. So even if they're 15 years old, they've been fed by us. They've never had to develop into an animal that goes out and fends for itself. Um, like, if you get a feral cat that's like two years old, like a cat that's lived on the street, that's, that's not going to make a very good pet. It's not going to interact with you at all, things like that. We keep them in, a, in an arrested state of development. That's what we do with cats. Um, this explains things like how they show the, uh, the behavior. You know the, the needing behavior they show? Yeah. Yeah, that's looking for a nipple. Yeah. And they're doing that at 12 most of your 12-year-old cats actually aren't nursing anymore, right? So it shows that we keep them in this arrested state of, 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 of sort of social development. Um, so in that case, it makes some sense if you've got you know, a couple cats, perhaps. But the idea that cats are social, they are not as young they would be, sure, because they've been cared for by their mom. And I guess in some respects, you are their mom. Please don't ever call yourself a cat mom. I hate when people do that. Okay. Are horses social? They were the herds, so yeah. They were the herds, right? So in the wild, so sure. Same thing with, uh, in fact, a lot of horses will have, I know, racehorses, for example, are often kept with almost pets. They might have a dog or a cat that lives with them, or a, or a, or a donkey or a. My Western parents have like goats that are with them. Goats is a very common, that's what I was looking for, was the word yeah, goat. They yeah. were saying that like they need the goats, but I wasn't sure if they. Yeah, I mean, the idea there, again, is that they, they have something, they, they are animals, they're herding animals, so it would make sense that they would, you know, and often racehorses do that, that's, I mean, it's a, that's a common thing. Uh, in fact, uh, the uh, uh, Tony Soprano's horse, Pino, might have had a goat. I'm marathoning the Soprano's right now, so. It's actually not Tony's, it's Ralph Cifaretto's, but Tony, anyway. I could just talk with the Sopranos for hours. I just love it so much. So, when are you going to be social? It makes sense to be social if there's a lot of predation risk. Um, and that's not that you're doing things based on the good of the group. It's actually, I don't have to run faster than the saber-toothed tiger. I just going to run faster than you. Right? That's, that's all it is. It's called the selfish herd. Being in a herd, uh, an animal that lives in packs or in herds or whatever the hell you want to call it, It's actually exceedingly selfish because 
if I'm on my own, the chance if a, if a, if a saber tooth tiger sees me, the chance of me living is almost nil. The chance of me being the attempted, at least prey at it, is 1.0. If there's 30 of us, the chance now goes down to, you know, 1 of 30. Yes. Hopefully there's some sick old people around, or perhaps some young that aren't related to me, and the saber tooth tiger will catch them. I win. So, and we see this a lot. There's risk of predation, we get self-assured. Um, if food is patchily distributed and the patches are large, think of this. If food is in patch, if food is in, is everywhere, there isn't much need, or as much need, to be in groups. If you're in a group and you find a big bunch of food, then there's enough for everybody. If you're in a group and there's just a small thing of food, that doesn't help you because the guy who finds it is going to eat it all. So one of these two things, sometimes both, we're going to get social uh, behavior in animals. And in fact, with us, we fit both of these things. We fit both of these things. We had, we had predation risk, but we didn't have the predation risk that a lot of other animals have. We get as smart every, every animal out there. But there were, you know, living on the plains of the savannah of Africa, there are big cats. There are predators that can take you down. There's no risk of predation for us today. Really, the biggest enemy of humans is humans. Right? And that's not really for prey so much. Hunting the most dangerous prey of all humans. Um, but food was certainly patchy in the street. Right, hunting and gathering is clearly patchy food, patchy food distribution. Okay, so it makes some sense that we live in groups. Got to look at the costs and the benefits of group behavior. So the benefits of being social have to outweigh the costs. So if there's not a lot of predation, there's not a lot of reason to hang out with each other. Not a lot of reason to be social. From that perspective, right, right? Because that's one of the things that, one of the selective pressures that can drive you to be social. If the food patches that you encounter are quite small, again, the benefit for you hanging around others right, is not going to be too high. So if you have neither of these things, you're probably not going to end up with a social animal. It's less likely. They're the only things that are going to drive it. Our closest living relatives are social. We know that chimps are social. Chimps live in family groups. They live in chimps. Uh, you know what a bunch of chimps is called? You know this? It's called a committee, which I think is great. Having served on many committees, it's like people throwing poop at each other. So chimps live in committees. They're a committee of chimps. I think that's great. But, and their family groups, more or less related. Okay. So that's our closest living relatives. Most, uh, yeah, pretty much all apes are, are social, so that's great. So, so are we. Now, what was the EEA actually like? What was life like? Short and brutish, that's for sure. There would have been some predation, as I said. I mean, there's, there's big cats. It's Africa. Uh, there's big cats. There's big cats that don't even exist anymore. You know, saber-toothed cats. 
scary animals. But even without saber-toothed cats, you take any of us and you drop us in um, Tanzania in a wildlife preserve, you're not going to last very long. There are lions. You will get killed. It's going to happen, right? We think about here now, there's not a whole lot of scary predators in this part of the world anymore. There's the odd, you know, uh, mountain lion kind of thing. But we don't see a whole lot of that. Do bears attack? You can... Bears aren't really preying on people. I wouldn't go hang out with bears. (laughs) But... Bears aren't necessarily out there looking for big game. That's not their thing so much. Whereas like a lion, that's what they do. They eat great big animals. Again, I, I, I put it this way. I can scare away a bear, right? You're camping. You know you make some noise. They'll go away, mm-hmm. right? With a lion, make some noise. They go, oh, look, dinner. <laughs> it's, it's a bit of a different thing. Um, so, yeah, we, we don't really have as much of that selective pressure here anymore. There were animals like that. In fact, it's almost certainly the case that it took so long People wonder, why did it take so long for humans to come to this part of the world, right? Spread all over the world very quickly. And then they don't get here until maybe 30,000 years ago, maybe as recent as 15, probably closer to 30,000 years ago. Um, Well, if you take a look, there were bands of, roving bands of hyenas in what is now Siberia. And humans shall not pass. They will just get eaten. Uh, once those hyenas died out, that, that species died out, and they were bigger than today's hyenas too. Then we went across. Hey, look, land. It's like people got there and went, okay, no, we will go to the There would be dragons beyond that, right? So nobody touched that. So that's, that's it. No one knows really if that's the case, but it looks like them all dying out coincides with us going over here and the people showing up here. So there would have been some predation. Um, food was patchy, but patches were probably pretty large. We're talking about, you know, fruit. We're talking about nuts and, and berries. We're also, you know, so we're also talking about things like, you know, animals, like, because we would have hunted herds of things like uh, mammoth. We also hunt smaller things like deer and rabbits and such. See, the, thing, the biggest thing probably is we evolved from, from animals that already are social. Yet we have this enhanced cognitive ability, don't we? We're smarter than every other animal. So it might have made sense to hang around others because it's a way to sort of, you know, keep your friends close, your enemies closer. The idea here is if I can remember when you screw me over. Right? So I'm just going to hang, we're all hanging around together. And distrust each other. And everything will be great. So it may have been something that simple that these things play a role. This is all guessing, obviously, until my time machine is perfected, but I've said too much. Um, I really want to submit. At the end of my career, I'm going to submit an insert operating grant to make a time machine just to see what happens. <laughs> um, but it might have been something as simple as we were already living in groups and we're so damn smart and we could screw each other over. Like it literally could have been that simple. 
probably all these things. Um, how did we live in the EA? Probably with the small bands. We, it's probably around 30 people, between 30 and 50. Upper limit being 50. Um, and probably varying degrees of relatedness. What you basically have is a traveling extended family. It's interesting, 30 or 50, uh, there's been some work, ever since the rise of social networking, there's been some work on how many friends can people actually have. Now, you know there's a limit on Facebook of 5,000. <laughs> but no one has 5,000 friends. I have 700 and something friends on Facebook. They aren't really all my friends. Can't stand some of you people. But, you know, <clears throat> I have uh, 7,300 on Google Plus, and I, I don't even use it. I don't know why. Um, what's Google Plus for? For Google employees. But it's interesting. So since the rise basically of Facebook, people started looking at how many friends can you actually have? How many friends are we able to keep track of in our heads? And it looks like the upper limit is about 50. The upper limit is about 50. Beyond 50, you really don't know very much about the person. You know the much about their name, like their face, but you don't know anything else about them. You can keep track of about 50 people, which is interesting because the upper limit of the size of a hunter-gatherer group is about 50 people. And it's not like the people that were doing the social networking research were saying, well, it's probably the upper limit of what we, uh, the way we lived uh, you know, 150,000 years ago. It just turns out that way. I mean, like I said, I love when stuff like that happens. We look at hunter-gatherers today, and there are fewer and fewer people that are, hunter, that are still hunter-gatherers. Um, this is how they tend to live as well. So we can make good guesses basically from the fossil record, because we can take a look at um, these groupings and see how many bones we get together when there's been some kind of disaster, right? We can look at things like how many friends can you actually have, which tells us something. And finally, you can look at today's hunter-gatherers, and there aren't a lot of them left. Um, which is, I, I'm not going to make a judgment about that, if it's good or bad, it just is. That's how they, they're living. There's an extensively studied uh, people in the Amazon that, whose name starts with a Y, and I'm going to mispronounce it. Um, I'm actually just not going to pronounce it. They've been extensively studied. Um, they, they have a lot of interaction with, with Western uh, <coughs> people, though. We can look at the Maasai in, in Tanzania. Um, they still live pretty traditionally, but they all have cell phones. The kids go to school, but they still live a traditional, basic, they follow their herds of cattle. There are peoples that live in the Amazon that literally have had no contact with, call it, call it it's Western society sounds strange because Brazil, well, Brazil's still Western, sure, Western society. There was a group that was found about like two and a half years ago, a little more than that, and a plane's flying over the Amazon, and you can take, they took a picture of these folks who are looking up at them with spears and masks on trying to scare away the plane. Mm -hmm. Right, and then of course it's like, do we do we even show the picture? 
Did we publish the picture? Do we say where the picture was taken? And the answer people said was no. Leave these people be. That's it's like you know it's the prime directive. It's like Star Trek. Leave them alone. Because <laughs> people, you know, with best of intentions, show up and tend to mess things up. Uh, but they don't even have any contact with other peoples that we know of that live a uh, sort of traditional lifestyle, but have a lot of contact because they've never heard of them either. So it's sort of interesting. Party wants to study the people and see because they, they, they have had no interaction, but the other party is like, yeah, and that's probably let's leave it alone. You know, there's a lot of food there. They know what they're doing. They're still around. Let's just leave them alone. I don't think we can help them, or, but we can probably hurt them pretty bad, even not on purpose. So, there's a bit of experience of that, I believe, in North America. That's me being sarcastic. I think we know the history there. <laughs> Many of us probably don't know the history. So, so there's this. So, when you're living in a group, you're basically living in a family, traditionally. Okay? We tend to live in groups that are related to us. And you're going to say, well, yeah, that's called a family. I know, and evolution doesn't care that we name for it. We don't just kick random people and live with them. Right? The, six of us don't just go off and hang out. Look at that. That's a little bit odd. Um, especially for you guys. Because <laughs> you'd be living with me, and that'd be weird. Um, you tend to live with your family, with people you're related to. Makes sense to be more social with people you're related to. You also tend to cooperate more because, partially because you're more related, you're more around them with people you're related to. Now, we can then look at aggression and we can look at homicide. And happily, which is a strange choice of words, this is not hard to do because there's a lot of data about aggression and homicide because cops write reports. There are crime statistics. And we know what happens in crimes. Yes, I know a lot of crimes no longer reported. I'm not denying. But we have data. And we have data that wasn't collected with any sort of bias, I guess, uh, towards any sort of hypothesis. It's just crime data. Which tells us a couple of interesting things. The first thing it tells us is this is the safest time ever to have been a human. And I know that might surprise you, but this is the safest, best time to have ever been a human. We have medicine that can cure things. We have vaccines that can prevent things. We fight fewer wars than we used to. This is a really wonderful time to be a person. I know when you watch CNN, you see things going on. You know what? We didn't used to have 24-hour news channels 30 years ago. Crime rates drop it all over the place, including violent crime. It's great. It's a great time to be a human. Could be better? Yeah. It'll probably be better the next generation. And the one after that will probably completely fucked the planet. So really, we're kind of hitting the peak right now. So, But, oh, I think I said, sorry. Uh, <laughs> I shouldn't do that. I have a, that's kind of a line I don't, that I try not to cross, I swear. 
and I just crossed it. I'm sorry. Um, okay, so if we're more social or we associate more with people we're related to, are we killing our relatives? No. But sometimes. Yeah, that happens. You know what we're usually killing? It's usually, first of all, most violent crime is men doing violent things to men. Yes, I know there's violent crime towards women done by men, and I know it's horrible, and that's now out of the way. Most of the time, it's men killing men. That's what men do. Men are idiots. They're violent. But they're not killing their brothers. And they're not killing their kids. But if they're going to kill kids, they're more likely to kill stepchildren than their own, than their own kids. They're very often, the most... And stranger killing is rare, by the way. This is the other thing. Most people think that the idea that most violent crime, including sexual assault, is done between people that don't know each other. Yes, it's not the case. It happens. Yeah, it happens. But it's interesting, those are the ones that horrify us more, isn't it? Right? The things that, the things that horrify us the most are, are serial killers and uh, you know, serial rapists, people like that. That scares the crap out of us. What's, and, and it disturbs us more somehow. I'm not saying that someone sexually assaulting someone they know is nicer, but it doesn't have the same visual reaction, or as much of one, let's say that. But who are we killing then? And we mean men, because that's who's doing most of the killing. Women, women, do women kill people sometimes? Sure, yeah. Most of it's guys. I've played so many poppies over Remembrance Day, I think. I lose them all the time, but it's good, good cause. Maybe the veterans, but it's like. But I feel bad because there's always some guy that fought like the Boer War standard. Probably not. In Korea. Standing there holding his box of poppies, and I looked at it. You know, you like having that smug look on your face. Like, oh, I got a poppy. Then I looked down and go, I lost my poppy again. Then I got to say to the guy, okay, I've given you guys like 20 bucks. Here's some more, but keep in mind, I'm giving you money. <laughs> Which will tie into something I'll talk about later. But. Who are we killing? Who are guys killing? They're killing their sister's brothers. Whoa. Disproportionately. I'm not saying all homicides are guys killing their sister's brothers. Not their sisters, their wives' brothers, because the sister's brother would be them. They're, they're killing their wives' brothers. Or girl, girlfriend's brothers. Why do I say sister's brother? So they're killing themselves to make a point. They're killing their wives' brothers. Oftentimes, it's the case that these are disproportionately, I'm not saying folk that about all crimes, but disproportionately so. And this tells us that what is usually going on is the, 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 the victim protecting his, half of his genes, his sister. So again, it's not that all crime is, but it's way more common than we would expect by chance. <coughs> So we're killing within the family, but not actual blood relatives. Huh. What are the proximate mechanisms for this? So we can talk about it, it actually makes some sad, cold biological sense. How are we recognizing family members? 
Well, there's a couple of possibilities. We could actually recognize it directly. We could actually somehow detect genetic lineages. Possible. Um, Trivers has talked about the green beard phenomenon, the idea that uh, hypothetically there's a gene that grows a green beard, and that same gene allows you to detect green beards. Then you would see your, that, your gene in someone else. Much more likely that it's just a mechanism that involves growing up together, being together, and then recognize that person as family. Which explains a couple of things. It explains, for example, when you look at the incest taboo, which is culturally universal. People are disgusted with the idea of mating with their adopted brother or sister. Even though that's a person you know really, really well, and you probably it's probably a good choice. Because you because you know the good and the bad. You can make a really informed choice, which you, you can't when you're mating with somebody when you you've known them forever. Except you go, oh, that's disgusting. It's gross. Right? So it's probably we recognize family by people we've grown up with. And the more time you've spent with them, almost like an imprinting kind of situation. All right. Now, we're big on reciprocal altruism the humans. We are more likely to help each other, and there's data on this like crazy, you can ask any social psychologist, when we'll get help in return. In other words, reciprocal altruism. Or the cost is really low. And the payoff is high. Or there's some pay. So if the cost is low and there's some payoff at all, we'll do something. Somebody drops a pen, you hand it to me. There's very little neg there's very little cost to that. Right? There's very little payoff, but there's some. It's like, oh, thanks. You get, a, you get all the thanks. That's a little payoff. So the cost is vanishingly small. We will do nice things for strangers. No problem. The higher, however, for strangers, the higher the, 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 the cost, the less likely we are. Same thing with family, of course, except that it's ratcheted up a notch with strangers. Public helping is more likely than private helping. We are way more likely to help in public than we are in private. That's with all things being equal. Now, I know you know about cases, the idea of diminished responsibility, right? We know about this. We know about the idea that we are more likely in an extreme situation to help a stranger true. But if we make everything else equal and it's not a huge thing, we're more likely to help in public. Why would that be? Well, because we get accolades from people. We get a payoff. It feels good. Right? You know, the ultimate giving up of resources to another human is, giving, is donating blood. It's physiological resources. Like you're actually giving up that and, and breastfeeding a child. But that's pretty obviously a child of yours. So that's easy to understand. But giving my vital bodily fluids, so have you ever seen Dr. Strange Love? Nobody. Okay, so you get the reference. To, but you're so culturally illiterate. Um, <laughs> to my thoughts. Learn every pop culture thing that I know, and then it will be fun. 
um, given my vital blood to a stranger who I'll never even meet. That's isn't that the ultimate ultra. That's real altruism, isn't it? It sounds like until people figured out that what happens is when you make it a public thing, when you give people a little badge that says "I gave blood," they give more blood, and they're more likely to give blood. So you can walk around and say to people, "Hey, ladies, look at how impressive I am. I give up my own blood. Other people I don't even know. That's how much resources I have." <laughs> That's how happening I am. It's like it's like a moose with great big horns, right? Because the idea of the moose with great big horns, why is it great big horns? They don't use them for anything else but having great big horns. It's like saying, I am so strong and tough that I have great big horns, <laughs> right? That's that's the whole idea of sort of sexual selection ornamentation. Right? We still have to think about the singular hero phenomenon, and that's the idea that when someone's getting mugged. If you see somebody getting beaten up at the side of the street, you're less likely to help them if you're in a group. Right? But if it's just you by yourself, you're more likely to help them. I can sit here and probably make up some evolutionary explanation for this, but I'm not going to, because I don't think there's a good thing that I've seen. Why do people do this? And it's especially true because people do this and disappear. Right? You don't hear it much here because, you know, it's, there aren't as many incidents like that in a smaller city. I remember in Toronto when I was going uh, to grad school, it was a famous case of a woman getting robbed and the guy was like threatening to kick her like, four-year-old's ass if she didn't give away the money. You know, so she died a hold of the kid and said, I'm going to kill your kid if you don't give me your wallet. Apparently, guy walks by jumps the other guy, beats the shit out of him, and just leaves. <laughs> He's Batman, right? <laughs> but not, but unlike Batman, he doesn't even say, I want you to tell your friends about that. <laughs> I'm Batman. He doesn't even do that. He just leaves. <laughs> we never find out who he is. And the thing is, you might think, well, maybe she made this up to get in the paper. She's kind of, maybe she's kind of crazy. But it turns out there's blood at the scene, and there's, <laughs> you know, and it's not just... It's not, it's not the kid. It's not her. It's somebody else's blood. And for, for a couple of months, the, the rewards kept going up. People were contributing money. Today, there'd be a Kickstarter campaign. Like, find this guy. <laughs> and they never found him. They described him, and he just sounded like some nondescript guy in his early 20s. And went, well, this, I, this, this will not stand. And he just went up and kicked somebody's ass. That happens. <laughs> Why I don't know, because he gets nothing out of it except personal satisfaction. He doesn't get pain out of this. He could have, he didn't. It's the way, you know, you sort of think that's the way guys are supposed to make it. That's, you know, you're raised as, as a guy. Well, that's what men do, but men hardly ever do that. They usually do this. It's not my business. <laughs> they just keep walking. But the singular hero thing does happen. We are also more likely to help in extreme situations when we're on our own. We're also more likely because of the diffusion of responsibility, right? So that stuff doesn't fit too well with evolutionary explanations. This is why when you're told, if we're told how to do CPR, you're told the first thing you do is you point at someone and say, you call an ambulance. You don't say, please, somebody call an ambulance, because everybody goes, oh, I don't somebody else do it. I don't want to use my minutes. I don't know the number for 911. So I don't know that I can explain this, that kind of behavior. And we don't have to always understand everything, but it would be neat if we could. 
because it's hard to reconcile that with the idea of the blood donor thing or me wearing my poppy. All of us wearing poppies. We're not just... We don't just do this. How many people really honestly, when they buy poppies, think about veterans of wars? Probably most of us don't. We think, well, this is a thing, and it's what you do in November, and it's good to give these guys some money. But now you're wearing a badge. I'm a good person. Right? You're more likely to give to charity, and charities know this, by the way. If you get a little badge, if you get a little thing you can put in your window saying, I gave to... And good on charities, they need money and they wouldn't be charities. Okay. Let's make this, we've gone from Batman saving people to something pretty nasty, racism. So, first of all, is in-group bias. We are more likely to like our own group and then be friends than people that are outside. We'll give them, we'll cut them more slack, things like as well, when they act like a jerk, for example. My dad had a theory about people that were Toronto Maple Leaf fans, or Canadians fans. My dad's theory was they all voted conservative, because <laughs> we were liberals. So he said, no, they're all just a bunch of conservatives. And I was like, that's true, Dad. Actually, Toronto tends to vote liberal. No, 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 no. Not Leaf fans. Those are Habs fans that have moved to Toronto that are voting liberal. I said, okay. <laughs> and I think he half made it. That's the thing that's a little disturbing. Um, my dad was a really rational guy, except about sports, but sports are actually completely irrational. Right? Sports are a great example here, even of in group bias. You ever go to a hockey game where there's people from the other team there, too? Like, not, people don't travel. There's like three people that travel to see the Greyhounds game from somewhere else, but it's not like there's a thousand people at the game. Okay? So, like, I remember last time I went, who were they playing? Oh, uh, Owen Sam. There were three people there. I swear, just three people. Which is great. Go travel with junior hockey team, whatever you like. But if you go to, let's say, you go to a... Back in the, in the 80s, a Canadians-Nordiques game, back when Quebec had a team. Um, man, that was intense. And you can ra- and that's... People don't fight. Ratchet that up to a football hooliganism in England. That's scary. People hit each other with lead pipes because of the football club they support. Right? In-group bias. So you, you, you favor your group over the other group. And we all do this, by the way. <coughs> Psychology students are smarter than sociology students, so biology students are better. They even do that. We do that all the time. Even though you know it's stupid, you do it. You know it's irrational, you do it. Right? This is a thing we do. Okay. <clears throat> and it does make some kind of evolutionary sense because the group you're with would be akin to being a, a family group, right? So we have to understand this stuff and let's let's go behind further than hockey and start thinking and, and such or where your, your major is. Let's think about things like uh, ethnic groups. Um this can have deadly consequences, right? <coughs> groups thinking they're superior to other groups has led to some bad things, Holocaust. Right? And that's just one example. We can, you can go on Armenian genocide, what happened to Native people in North America. Uh, go on and on. <laughs> bad stuff, slavery, 
These are not good. These are not good things. And the thing is, bias has become bigger when membership is obvious. In-group bias has become bigger when membership is obvious. So if you look at a, a, a UK football match, people are all wearing scarves of their team. And, it, and it, soccer games in the, in the UK or in Europe, they actually separate the fans from different teams. We don't do that. I remember being in the UK watching a hockey game in a pub, and the guy couldn't believe how Rangers fans and Blackhawks fans were sitting beside each other and not beating the shit out of each other. He said, well, yeah, we tend to confine our fighting to the playing surface over where I'm from. So bias has become bigger when membership is more obvious. We tend to overestimate intelligence, for example, of our own group and underestimate the others, all things like that, when it's obvious. So what we have here is we look for badges. We look for things that tell us what group you belong to. And the most obvious one we can talk about is sort of racial grouping. Race is a very useful concept, actually. Um, it's, it's not a very useful badge at all to look at relatedness anymore. It really isn't. Um, even the idea that race is a useful construct is probably not very, beyond sort of a social thing. I don't think it's very useful. Biological, it certainly isn't, as a rule. But a long time ago, if I saw somebody that had different colored skin than me, or spoke a different language than I do, or worshiped different gods than I do, means they weren't related to me. They're badges. One of the things you should take a look at are some of the ads that Obama ran in his two presidential campaigns. A black man got elected the president of a country that used to have slaves. That's amazing. Should be amazing to you. What did he do in his ads? Because he's obviously not like most American voters, is he? Because most American voters are white. He showed himself with his family. He showed himself reading to his daughters. He showed all the things and also interacting mostly with white people. Hmm. I'm not saying he had an evolutionary psychologist uh, consulting for him. I'm saying that his consultants were smart enough to know they can look like one of the average Joe. So we look for these badges. Not a very useful badge as far as genetic relatedness at all. It really isn't. Right? But it's an obvious one. People do still seem to care about the color of other people's skin, about what language they speak, about what gods they worship, which is not to worship, etc. change if you give people a cue that is reliable about group membership. So you can say, and this is what Obama did in his election campaign, for example, see, I'm just like you. I, uh, one of the websites I read every morning is 538.com, which is a, uh, it's news, but it's data-driven news, so it's all about making predictions, there's a lot of regression models, it's, just, it's perfect, it's, 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 it's news made for Dave Broadbeck, it's like advanced statistics and politics put together. They started in 2008, um, and one of the 
the amazing stories that was told was they did all this data-driven stuff, but they were also driving around the country interviewing people. And they were in a very racist part of Pennsylvania. And asking people who they were going to vote for and why, just knocking on doors. And they asked a the guy, and they said, I asked the woman, who, who are you voting for? And the woman yells out to her husband, who are we voting for? And he yells out, the N-word. Wow, so this guy's obviously a racist. He hates, he thinks, clearly thinks black people were bad. He's going to vote for, for black guy. Why? I don't know. But it tells us something. Something else, and again, those ad campaigns, things like that, showed us that, and showed the American voter, that he was more like them. They were giving a better, more reliable cue. Right? Right? So if we show each other that we're the, more this, I've said this so many times, people are way more the same than they are different. Different groups, different ethnic groups, racial groups, men and women. Um, if we can get that out there and people learn this, we could probably have fewer problems. I know it sounds a little bit like I'm some sort of hippie, but it's tr truly the case. So the idea here educationally is we can talk about how there are universal people. We can tell people, we can celebrate cultural differences, those great things, but why don't we tell people that we're way more the same than we are different? I think that'd be awesome. It doesn't mean you have to give up anybody, it is to give up their culture. What it means is you have to say, those are cool differences, but you know what? We're really all the same species. That's pretty cool. Speaking of culture. So we started with a discussion of culture and music and the folly of using it as an explanation for culture. Because remember, what is culture? Culture is the pattern of behavior and cognition in a group of people. And then when they say, why is there a difference between Oh, I don't know, let's pick two ethnic groups. It's not going to offend anybody. So there's no one in here from Iceland. And no one in here has Icelandic heritage. Okay, good. And there's no one in here that is a, oh, I don't know, how about let's choose. Anybody here a Bantu Bushman? Anybody have any of that? No, okay, good. So the Bantu and uh, Icelanders are different people. Why are they different? Well, their cultures are different. So you're saying they behave and think differently because they, of the way they behave and think. Not a very good explanation. Not a very good explanatory tool. I'm not saying there's no culture. I'm, not, I'm saying it's, it's you got to get deeper than that. you got to get deeper than that. That's what I'm saying. So, and the social world influences us so much. And we were talking just the other day. Why are, why are babies babies? Why are kids kids? Because they've got to learn stuff. So clearly, culture matters. So what we want to do then is see if we can reconcile the standard social science model and evolutionary psychology. Because I don't want to throw everything out that's come out of this, because so much good stuff's come out of the standard way of looking at things. I want to, and I don't want to throw this out because it might make me uncomfortable. It doesn't make me uncomfortable. It makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Of course, any white guy. Maybe, I mean, white male. So power, yada, yada. So there may be something to that. I'm not sure. I think we can. Um, if I didn't think we can, I don't think I'd be interested in this. Evolutionary psychology is, in fact, an explanation of how society influences us. It's the ultimate environmental theory, isn't it? And it tells us how 
much we are the same, and I think it tells us we should be interested not in just our differences, but in our similarities. It doesn't just tell us how society influences, it tells us where society comes from. Right? That's a neat question. Why do we have society? Why do we have why do we leave groups? Things like that. Those are huge questions. The other questions aren't uninteresting around the court. I'm saying that's a whole other kind of question we ask. Um, it doesn't deny cultural, that'd be stupid. Denying cultural differences would be ridiculous. Saying that there are different kinds of that people who are brought up in different societies changes who they are. Of course it does. That's foolish. You don't deny it. But it doesn't play them up and say that that's all that matters. Right? I can sit here and say there are sex that reliable sex differences that are cross-cultural. Because there are. But I'm not going to say that on most things, women and men are pretty much the same on average. That would be dumb to deny that. just doesn't see this as the end of the explanation, the idea of a cultural difference. There are things that are interesting here. Attractiveness, for example, is almost, it's pretty much culture independent as far as facial features. I'm not talking about body shape, though the waist hip ratio of 0.7 and a man uh, having broader shoulders than his, than his waist, those are attractive pretty much cross-culturally. But then the idea of contrast effects, the idea that we can look at differences between groups and let's say what they find attractive. Right? Because that's kind of interesting, because you will find, for example, in some cultures, uh, they like people, and even over time, you can even look over time within cultures, looking at the size of people, how much they weigh. And you can see over time that while that stuff changes, there's an easy way to do this kind of work, by the way. Um, it's we can go back to about 1955 and reliably get data once a month for what men find attractive. And we actually have how big their chest is, how big their waist is, and how big their hips are. It's called the Playboy Centerfold. Because they act, no, seriously, people have done this. Because you can actually look and they list. I've been told I've never, I don't want to read the articles. But, <laughs> but you can actually, they, they should list the measurements of people, of women. Yes, it's not, yeah, whatever. The nice thing is we can look at that and we can see that people, what men seem to be finding attractive seems to be getting thinner. So there's a contrast there, but the waist to hip ratio is 0.7. Overwhelmingly, it just, it's a flat curve. Right? So what is the domain then of evolutionary psychology? What do we study? We can really only look at stuff that goes after fitness. That affects fitness. And there's a lot of things I think that humans do. Yeah, we can always make up stories. But I don't want to make up stories. I want to have real explanations. So we can sit here and say, oh, I don't know, how about uh, body piercing? That's a good one, right? So <coughs> that's become a thing in the past 20 years. It's much more common. 20 years ago, a guy who was my age wouldn't have five earrings. 
It would just be something that it wouldn't be a thing. You'd go, that's a little weird. Okay. And now it's it's nobody. I haven't been asked anything about my earrings in about 20 years. No one's probably more than that. I think I told you guys the last time I got a quote. Why? What, what does it mean that you have your pierced your right ears pierced? It means I pierced my right ear. Does it mean you're gay? No, that doesn't make you. That you really don't know how sexuality works, do you? Um, so that's a trend that happened. Does it affect fitness? I don't know. Can we look at cultural trends like that? It's not fitness. We probably can, but I'm a little uncomfortable saying that that's anything that has anything to do with fitness. Did it affect my fitness somehow? I don't know. Probably not. So I think we have to look at, and it's interesting, those kind of cultural trends, why does it happen? Why do people decide they want to pierce their ears or uh, get tattoos or get a thing in their lip? Whatever. You know, there's certain things I wouldn't do, but I don't care if people do it, but like, why are people doing that now? Why does that become a trend? I have a friend who made purple the most popular color of the year in 1997 because he worked for Vogue magazine. And he told me at Christmas, you know what's going to be coming this year? Purple. How do you know this? Because I picked them. Um, <laughs> I went to high school with a big fashion guy. And the weird thing was then on TV, you'd start seeing women wearing purple. You go, what's going on? How did he do that? He just picked the color. That's power. I want that kind of power. Because <laughs> I want people to start wearing really stupid things. Like I'm going to say the new thing's going to be like dunce caps. <laughs> you know, the urban sombrero from Seinfeld. Right? <laughs> um, so some stuff has no fitness effect. Now, some things are universal. So you're going to say, well, what about things that are universal that usually would have some fitness angle? The best example here is music. Does music have an effect on fitness? I, I don't know. But every human culture makes music. Every human culture makes music, doesn't it? There isn't a human culture that's like, yeah, we never figure out music. We just, uh, we just yell a lot. Right? So there's no human culture like that. Every, everybody's making music. Steve Pinker, who's a pretty good evolutionary psychologist, has said that he thinks that music actually has no fitness benefits and didn't evolve itself, but it's more like what he calls auditory cheesecake. <coughs> what does he mean by that? Cheesecake. It's all the perfect notes for a food stuff. We, don't, we never evolved to like cheesecake, but it's got fat and sugar. It's loaded with fat and sugar, right? So it's almost nature's favorite food, right? except that we didn't evolve around cheesecake. And it's got protein. And it's had a little bit of sour. Perfect food. I don't know anybody who's like you. Everybody likes it. But it isn't something we didn't evolve a preference for cheesecake. Same thing with music. This is what Pinker says. That music hits all these things that we like. It's got rhythm, which is something we like. It's got a communication aspect, which is something we do. It's social. It gets all these places, but we didn't. But music didn't evolve 
as its own thing. Appreciation of music didn't develop. This is what, what Pinker says. I kind of like that. I because I've heard other explanations that music is like you know mating rituals. And are there is there music used in mating rituals among various peoples? Yes, but it isn't used in all of them. Right. So it's an example. So sometimes we have things that make sure in our cultural universals that aren't necessarily things that we can say, oh, that, that thing evolved. So we have to be careful. We have to be careful. So people often accuse evolutionary psychology of being pessimistic. Why are we pessimistic? Well, I'm saying that people are selfish. I'm saying that it's understandable that there's racism. I'm saying that it's understandable that there's murder. I'm saying that it makes evolutionary sense. Just fantasize. Wow. Yeah, that is if you believe the naturalistic fallacy and believe that all those things I just said, when I said it makes sense that or it is natural that, that also meant it is morally correct. And that's not what I said. And this is when I think of the big, when people criticize evolutionary psychology, a lot of times they're like, you think women should be in the kitchen. And do raising children and men. No, I never. I didn't say that. I said it doesn't surprise me. And it doesn't surprise me that food preparation is almost always a female thing, except under very specific circumstances. And that child rearing, culturally universal, is a is a female thing. But I didn't say it should be. I don't think I could have handled watching my wife do all the stuff with the kids. You can handle it for short periods of time, and it feels pretty good, and then you start feeling guilty. Also, you want to interact with your kids. I, I don't understand how people of my parents' generation operated. I don't get how guys thought then. I really don't. My dad, in his whole life, I remember asking him, um, you, did you ever change a diaper? Like, no. He looked at me like I was an idiot. I said, well, you want to try? He goes, no. I, I've lived my whole life without doing it. I'm not going to do it now. I don't understand that kind of thinking. Right? So if you believe in the naturalistic fallacy, yeah, sure, it's pessimistic, but of course, hopefully you don't. It's an environmental theory. This is a thing that a lot of people a lot of times say it's biological determinism. Actually, no, it's the ultimate environmental theory. It's the environment changes your biology. We can get an understanding of things like how to educate people to prevent things like racism. To show them that we are this more the same that we are different. And again, not to deny the differences, but point out that we're all humans, we're the same freaking species. If we weren't, how would we be able to interbreed? We're not different species, we're all the same thing. We all come from a small band of people. Which is awesome. So I think of evolutionary psychology actually as being really optimistic. The only thing, it, and I think also we could, for example, the idea that we care about the short term more than the long term. Right? Because short term payoff makes more sense to care about if you're, if you're only going to live to be 30. Right? And you're living on the savannah. And it's 150,000 years ago. Makes complete sense. But it tells me we can explain to people about long term views and maybe affect the way that they behave for things like, you know, climate change, stuff like that. So I think it's actually pretty optimistic to be a humanity. 
because it, it, it shows that we are we come from this small band of people that were almost extinct. Perfect. I wanted to have some time for discussion. This is great. Um, okay. First of all, any questions we talked about today before I open this up to, to something I want to talk about? Okay. There is. Why do you think that there is such resistance in the world? Society at large, we don't talk about something in psychology because there really isn't. If there was resistance to this course existing, it wouldn't exist. This is a new course that we worked up four years ago. So there's clearly no resistance to the department. Why do you think there's resistance to the world for using evolutionary understanding and explanation of human behavior? I think people just really like the blank slate model. I think that's yeah. funny. I know to a lot of people, they just discuss that kind of thing. But why do they like it? I mean, do people feel good, you think? It's, com it's comfortable. I think it's comfortable. Yeah, I think you might have something there. It's, it, it fits in nicely with our sort of, with our, with our you know, Western liberal democracy, is that anybody, it fits in nicely with, I, I think, the idea of equal rights. And I think people mistake equal opportunity for equal outcomes. Right? I, I, that's sort of my feeling. Other thoughts on that? Like, yeah, please. You have to have everyone to like, accept and understand evolution, and that's, yeah, that's also it. Yeah, I think especially over there, <laughs> body of water, and that's where the other people live. But speaking of any group, that group. But, but even in Canada, there is there is resistance to it. But even in Canada, a lot of people go, yeah, of course. They don't understand evolution. A lot of people have this sort of a Lamarckian view of how evolution works. So even at that level, I think that's part of it too. That's part of it too. Any other thoughts on this? I'm really a part of this is like I know enough about this to know it's not about justifying racism. It's about explaining it for you. Yeah, what? Uh, I was going to say I think people feel threatened by it because it can sometimes change their whole belief. So. Oh, I think that's true. I think you might be onto something there. Yeah, it's a little threatening. It's a little threatening. It's not something that makes you feel. I mean, I, I guess I, I did start the course up by saying everything you know is wrong, so maybe that, that, that's part of it. Yeah, or like a mental shortcut, like it's easier to just keep believing in something that everyone already knows than to understand the truth. Yeah. I think that's true. I mean... Yeah, I think that's something you said that too. I mean, I think the, the danger in this is trying to see everything, and that's why I ended that way, everything as an adaptation. And I know when I first learned this stuff, and I learned it when this was a controversial thing to be taught. I started seeing everything as an adaptation. It's like, oh, those shoes that guy, person invented those shoes, probably. Yeah, that's what you make it run with that. I'm an idiot. You know, I don't think like that anymore. I hope you guys don't. And this was not the fault, by the way, the person who taught me class. It was the fault of me overusing something. I have a tendency to do that. Okay? Um, I think that people have a hard time. Um, because a lot of evolution comes from like animals, and because um, we are evolved from like primates. We're animals, yeah. Yeah, and people have a hard time comparing us or being on the same level as animals because yeah. we think we're superior. Yeah, I think so. I think that's true. 
um, I think one of the real issues is, in fact, one, for example, one of the uh, Wikipedia pages that I watch is called Objections to Evolution. And there's somebody that wants to, people say, well, we're not even, there are people that say, well, we're not even animals. So even accepting the idea among some people that humans are animals and can all, and are, are affected by the same laws of nature, right? I think that is uncomfortable for some people. Um, in, in Dawkins' book, Selfish Gene, he says, uh, when, if and when aliens show up on Earth and if people are still here, we have a record place. They're not going to ask us about special relativity. They're not going to ask us about the periodic table. They're not going to ask us about the structure of the atom. They're going to say, you guys figured out evolution by natural selection yet? Because that's why we exist. Okay? We're the only, I think about this, we're the only species on this planet that asks these questions. That's something that always... There's something very special about people. And humans are exceptional. I mean, among the animals. There's no other species that does it anything remotely like we do in a lot of respects. And I think it makes us feel so special that we then think that we're, because we think like that, that we're almost exempt from it. The thing is, I think evolution is hard to see. Because it doesn't happen in real time. It doesn't happen in real time among animals with generations of 15, 20 years, right? Then again, you can point out to people. Um, well, I, I also have heard people say, "Well, evolution is irrelevant now because we live in this sort of society." Misunderstanding that it moves so slowly, right? But take a look at something like, for example, the, our ability to um, metabolize uh, lactose after being children. Every other primate is lactose intolerant. All mammals, when they're adults, are lactose intolerant. They, 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 it makes them very violently ill. We're not. Some people are. But it looks like, and if you can look at the genetic clock, it's probably a very recent thing. And it probably happened, that mutation showed up it started to spread pretty quickly. About the time when we domesticated cattle, around six, eight thousand years ago. Hey, look, whole new food. So these things, things do show up. Things do show up, and that's probably the most recent thing that I can think of. That's a big thing of being human, because no other mammal can. Ingest, no, they can ingest it. They just get cramps and diarrhea and they vomit. Like people, if you know who have, or if any of you are lactose intolerant, you know, if your friends are lactose intolerant, you have ice cream and they go, okay, I, I'm going to have, I'm just going to have some ice cream. I'm going to be so sick, but okay. <laughs> so I was like, aren't there pills you can take? Yeah, I don't take drugs. Well, okay. <laughs> Love people like that. Nothing, nothing weird goes into my body, man. You know, ice cream's pretty weird. <laughs> Ever think about what that is? Right? You ever seen the mad cow? Or mad cat disease? Yes. <laughs> of course I'm a mad cow. What if I broke into your place and killed your kids to eat them <laughs> and took milk out of your wife? Yeah, I'm a mad cow, all right. 
pretty bad too. So I mean, yeah, I think that it's, it's that. I think that people mis I think people misunderstand it as biological determinism. I think it's one of the really big things. And I think one of the things that you can do now that you understand a lot of this stuff is explain to people that it isn't. That it isn't biological determinism. That it's, and it isn't. It isn't. Uh, it's the ultimate environmental theory. You know, it's just looking at it, and then it can coexist with other things because it tells you about function, not about cause. Right. All right. Um, you have a test coming up.
This podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's pod safe, and most of it comes from garageband.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.